Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you an episode from The Vault. This one is called Dissolver of Worlds. It originally published on April 27th, 2021. I remember being very excited about this one when we recorded it. Uh, we, we talk a lot about the history of the quest for a universal solvent in, in alchemy. All right, let's dive right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I wanted to start off today by thinking about containers. Um, If you ever look around a chemistry lab, you will notice that there are a lot of containers made out of glass. Uh, Glass is often thought of as, as the chemist's friend, right? And this is because silica the the stuff that glass is made out of is generally chemically inert not much reacts with it and glass is insoluble in in most solvents so it's not going to be leaching off and contaminating your sample but this is not true in all cases for instance, there's a chemical we've talked about on the show before called hydrofluoric acid, uh, the solution of hydrogen fluoride or HF in water. Hydrogen fluoride is known to actually corrode even glass. And there's some pretty good videos of this that you can look up, like the YouTube channel called Periodic Videos has one you can find where they dissolve a glass light bulb in hydrofluoric acid. I think while it's plugged in, by the way, at least uh, when when the glass finally does dissolve and break off in the liquid, the... uh, the filament inside the light bulb, I recall, is like sparking in the solution in a, in a very weak and creepy and cursed way. But it's kind of disturbing to see even glass, the ultimate non-reactor, j- just getting sort of uh, uh, cleanly sheared off of, of the top of a bulb when it's dipped into this, this stuff and then falling away and eventually just dissolving into it and becoming a liquid itself. Uh, regular glass, of course, is, is made of silica sand, which is made of silicon dioxide, or SiO2. And when you put glass into hydrogen fluoride, into hydrofluoric acid, the hydrogen fluoride breaks the bonds between silicon and oxygen in silica to form silicon fluorine molecules. And the result is the hydrofluoric acid eats right through the solid glass. So here you've got this material, this uh, hydrofluoric acid, that cannot be stored in regular glass containers. It has to be stored in special plastic containers, or it might eat right through the bottle and spill everywhere. And this is a jumping off point for today's episode, because we're going to be looking at the question of, what if you were to imagine a material that pushed the boundaries even farther, if there was a solvent that that could dissolve everything it touched, a, a sort of universal solvent. Mm. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of our discussions in the episode on Hollywood acid, the, uh, uh, yeah. the way that acids are sometimes presented in uh, science fiction, especially where, you know, you uh, you wound a xenomorph and it's uh, it's it's acidic blood seems to just burn its way through every um, floor, you know, all the way through the hull of the ship. Yeah, precisely. So this will be kind of a, a follow up episode to that. But uh, but going more into the history of alchemy and getting into some of the metaphorical realms of these uh, these high-powered solvents. Now, one thing this immediately 
relates to for me is a thought experiment that I remember encountering from reading some of the American philosopher Daniel Dennett's books, where um, Dennett often talks about a, a metaphor that he uses called universal acid. It's basically exactly what we're describing here. Uh, but he doesn't mean it in the pure material sense. Dennett uses the metaphor of universal acid to describe evolution. Uh, and, and what he means there is that evolution is a concept that is not just a theory in biology. It's not just that when we discovered evolution by natural selection, we could suddenly explain the diversity of species on Earth. That was true. But it's also a sort of revolutionizing worldview that changes everything it touches. And so to quote from his summary of this idea from his book, uh, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, Dennett writes, Universal acid is a liquid so corrosive that it will eat through anything, but what do you keep it in? It dissolves glass bottles and stainless steel canisters as readily as paper bags. What would happen if you somehow came upon or created a dollop of universal acid? Would the whole planet eventually be destroyed? What would it leave in its wake? After everything had been transformed by its encounter with universal acid, what would the world look like? Little did I realize that in a few years I would encounter an idea, Darwin's idea, bearing an unmistakable likeness to universal acid. It eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview, with most of the old landmarks still recognizable but transformed in fundamental ways. Now, there's a thing here where the metaphor, I think, might not be the best one because we get Hollywood acid in our brains, and when we think about Hollywood acid... Hollywood acid doesn't just change, it destroys, right? You put the Batman in the Hollywood mm -hmm. acid, and then the Batman is no more. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of this, though, though, comes down to what we, I mean, when you talk about things being destroyed, this is a very human viewpoint. This is a very, um, you know, organism-based view of things mm -hmm. that... Um, the Batman is destroyed in the acid that uh, the 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 car is destroyed in the crash uh, that or that even something is destroyed when it is um, you know when it's just a you know a metal or something and it's melted or it's uh, or it's, uh, it's 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 put into some sort of uh, an acid or a base but mm -hmm. it, you know it comes back to the, to the basic principle that matter can neither be uh, you know ultimately created or destroyed everything can only be transferred into different states or broken right. down into different components. That's a very good point. Yeah, from the sort of like chemical view of the universe, nothing has been destroyed. But I, I think it'd be fair to say that if you put a Batman in a bunch of sulfuric acid and then you liberate all the possible water molecules from him and just leave a bunch of elemental carbon, you could say in some sense the Batman has been destroyed conceptually at least. Yes, but I mean, part of that is the difficulty of then recreating a Batman, right? Because, <laughs> right. I mean, we would have to recreate not only the Batman's body, but the Batman and psyche and mm -hmm. uh, and you know there are huge hurdles not only in terms of of science and our understanding of psychology but also time it's a huge time investment to try and reproduce another batman right so so i don't know if uh, maybe he could have used a, a slightly better metaphor for what he means because what i think he means is not that the concept of evolution destroys everything it touches mm -hmm. in culture, but rather it reacts with everything it touches. So it leaves the world we knew before populated with the same questions and beauties and wonders, but each of them's sort of now upgraded by a chemical reaction. Each one sort of changed somewhat by our new perspective. You have a new scientific way of thinking about everything that you knew before. 
Yeah, I, you know, I think this this argument it certainly applies to evolution very strongly, uh, uh, but uh, you know, to evolutionary theory, but it also can apply to even um, hypotheses that we've discussed in the show before. You know, take, uh, for instance, the bicameral mind hypothesis uh, by Julian Jaynes. Uh, that's an example of of, uh, of a very infectious idea that yeah. once you have, uh, if you've really gotten into it, you it, it kind of can change the way you think about so many other things. Um, and there are even less, you know, controversial ideas you can think of where once you have, once you were alert to, say, um, Oh, just, uh, you know, certain sort of psychological ideas about how, um, uh, you know, how things like trauma work, you know, uh, it, it changes the way you think about reality because you have a different way of processing uh, what is going on or maybe going on with other people and other groups and throughout history. Yeah, in the metaphorical sense, I mean, all kinds of ideas, I guess, can become a, a mental universal solvent. I'd say in, in some cases with with uh, more use than in other cases, like sometimes we just start applying an idea to everything because it's really fun. Yeah. And in other cases, we start applying idea an idea to everything because we get we f- we at least believe we're getting some kind of analytical use out of it. Like it's explaining more than uh, than than other ideas that we had previously, though I would say be cautious of of any lens that seems to explain everything, because you know I, I've been through phases in my life where I sort of like learned a new analytical lens, and then it explained literally everything in the world. Like you, you got to be careful about those. Usually, you're probably over applying it at that point. <laughs> yeah, like if you if you just apply aliens to everything. Uh, and then it works. Uh, you know, you're probably over applying aliens. I, there was actually a sample I've, I hear every now and then in a in a track uh, where someone's saying, you know, listing off all these different um, uh, things and then saying, you drop aliens in the middle of this and everything makes sense. Um, <laughs> so, it's always true. Yeah, it's always true. So if there's anything like that, yeah, you could you can sub anything for aliens. If, if it feels like it's a perfect fit, that it explains everything, that it that it absolutely dissolves all the mysteries of life well i don't know it's it's probably not the universal solvent you're you're really looking for but it can seem like that but before we get back into the fully metaphorical space about what it means to to think about the world in terms of universal solvents i want to actually consider the the real material possibility of a universal solvent uh, especially as it has figured into the history of alchemy uh, because you, you probably know, even if you only have passing familiarity with alchemy, that one of the endeavors of of alchemy was this search for these sort of dream materials, these holy grail materials. What uh, a an author I'm going to be quoting uh, extensively in this episode, uh, Lawrence Principe, calls chemical arcana, or I guess singular chemical arcanum, uh, these objects that are sort of the MacGuffins of alchemy that alchemists were, were questing after. So one of these things might be like the philosopher's stone that could allow you to transmute base metals into gold uh, in the process known as chrysopoeia. Or other ones might be uh, – actually, I talked about one in an artifact episode I did not too long ago. Uh, it's an idea that you can find going all the way back to ancient Roman times, and that's the the concept of bendable glass, the mm. vitrum flexilae or vitrum malleabile, that – uh, you could have glass that could be soft like dough and shaped into into different uh, you know into whatever form you needed. But another similar arcanum in alchemy was the concept of alkahest, a a substance that would act as a universal solvent that could break down anything. 
Now, discussing alchemy is always a little bit difficult because alchemy is somewhat controversially defined. Like, mm-hmm. different people try to insist on different historical understandings of exactly what alchemy was. I mean, you can say it's a it's the general output of a group of certain scholars who, you know, were kind of secretive about their beliefs and were working with materials in some way. I mean, it's a kind of slippery concept. In English, the term has been used to refer to a huge range of beliefs and behaviors with special emphasis on things done that that sound in some way related to sorcery, the hermetic, and the occult. And these associations are absolutely not without foundation. Like, they, they, much of alchemy does have uh, occult and, and, and supernatural connections. But another way to understand alchemy, for the purpose of today's discussion at least, is that it is sort of the proto-scientific study of the dynamics of matter, mm-hmm. uh, particularly concerned with transforming one type of matter into another or of isolating the constituents of a material, refining that material, or enhancing its alleged properties, many of which were perceived to be medicinal properties. I know a lot of people in the modern era when they think of alchemy, they think about people trying to turn lead into gold. And and then that was a preoccupation of some people in the world of alchemy. But also a huge part of alchemy was a quest for medicine. Yeah. Now, I guess two two points to make here. One is that we do often think of, of it when we think of alchemy, we may think of a very Western context and we think of People who look like wizards, you know, or even specifically someone who looks like John D. or Merlin uh, toying around with science stuff. You know, alchemy is science stuff, what wizards do. Uh, but it is also important to note that that alchemy and things that we think of uh, in English uh, and, and, uh, in the, and in the Western world as alchemy, you also find that in the uh, in the Arabic world. You find it in uh, in ancient India. You find it in ancient China. Uh, you know, the, so alchemy can very broadly speak be seen as kind of a, a global effort of learned individuals trying to learn more about the world. Um, I think one way to think of it, too, is think about geographic discovery. You know, people setting out on on voyages, trying to find distant lands that they know to exist or that they have heard to exist. Sometimes those lands do not exist at all. Sometimes they are, you know, islands of the imagination. But Mm. in the quest to find those places, they find real places. And ultimately, this leads up to a, a, a more accurate and more refined understanding of the world. Oh, an interesting parallel between alchemy and your geography example uh, during, say, ages of exploration where people were trying to get away from their home country and figure out what else was out there that they could find. Uh, There are going to be different levels of perspicacity and reporting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, because like whatever you've discovered, you may think of this as, oh, this is knowledge I want to share with the world. But you may also very much think of it as like kind of a trade secret or a personal, you know, this is something I've discovered for me and my, my, my buddies. And we need to keep this secret and, and not let everybody else get in there before we've had a good go at it. Yeah. And then you have that pesky situation of discovering the real, but yeah, keeping it secret or only holding on to it because of your quest for the unreal. And and we've touched on this before on the show before um, ooh, when we were talking about uh, urine at some point, uh, urine's role in alchemy. And uh, I forget the, the, the exact uh, chemical episode where we were discussing this, oh. uh, but. The, the history of alchemy is full of such scenarios. 
You know, I was reading actually a Washington Post article from January 2018 by Ben Guarino that interviews Lawrence Principe, one of the one of the authors uh, who's an expert on alchemy that we're going to be talking about in this mm-hmm. episode. And this article ends up talking a lot about pee. And there was one part I found very funny. It's talking about how in Principe's lab, uh, he will try to recreate some uh, some old alchemy experiments as they're described from these these texts. Mm-hmm. And so the artifacts of these experiments are all all around his lab. And, and the article here describes, on the counter sits a large jar labeled phlegm of acidified urine. <laughs> More than one alchemical recipe calls for human pee. Principe said an old Arabic text used the phrase, the secret is within you, probably meaning, well, reader, you go figure it out. And then it quotes Principe saying, but some people took that more literally, so they ended up using vast amounts of urine. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and, yeah. And and now that I've had a second to reflect, uh, it was our, our invention episode or episodes on the matchstick. Uh, yeah. Were we talking – I can't read – so we talked about multiple people who used urine. At least one of the main people who was big into to urine experiments was uh, was the 17th century alchemist Hennig Brand. Who uh, who really specifically wanted uh, urine from beer drinkers? So it was like, go to the bars, get the drunks to pee in a bucket, and I will create a huge, a gigantic vat of of beer drinker pee. Yes, yes, it, it was Brand. He was in search of the uh, philosopher's stone, um, mm-hmm. but in doing so, uh, made these discoveries that ultimately tied into our understanding of, uh, of phosphorus and and matches, and uh, you know, the, or matches being the uh, uh, one of the uh, the actual real world in- world inventions to come out of this quest for the fantastic. But it's so funny also about like misinterpreting the line, the secret is within you, to mm-hmm. mean like literally in your bladder. Yeah, uh, because that that seems. Just, just perfect for the world of alchemy because there was a lot of sort of metaphors and secret keeping, kind of coded language. Uh, Principe talks uh, in in one interview I was watching about how you know in some alchemical texts the author will not say the conventional names of the chemicals that he's talking about. He might. So instead of saying nitric acid, he will say the red dragon. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, um, you know, like add nitric acid to this solution, he would say something like allow the red dragon to consume the white eagle or something. So, you know, it's kind of you have to like dig through and figure out what all of these code words refer to. Not in every case, but in many. Yeah. So it, it, it makes looking back on some of these recipes and ideas oftentimes confusing because uh, like I'm reminded of, of the recipe that I, I looked at once for um, the creation of a homunculus. And it it has this kind of coded language in it. So it's, sometimes it's hard to determine, you know, how much of what you're looking at is just abject occultism and, and, and sorcery and how much is coded material referring to something more closely related to to the world of chemistry and, and reality. Oh, right. So like, is it actually asking for like a bat's wing or is it, or is that a code for like saltpeter or something? Yeah. And I guess you can, you can look at similar situations throughout our, uh, you know, the, the world of, of language and, uh, and spirituality and all. But, um, I guess one of the things to drive home with, with alchemy is that, yes, we're talking about a, a ultimately a proto-scientific sphere, uh, uh, one, you know, this is one 
though, in which scientific considerations are either inherently mingled with philosophic and supernatural ideas or at the very least are heavily susceptible to flowing into those subjects. Mm-hmm. And as the author um, Mercier Eliade put it in The Forge and the Crucible, quote, alchemy posed as a sacred science, whereas chemistry came into its own when substances had shed their sacred attributes. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, the one thing I do want to talk about as we go on is the ways that different uh, practitioners of the alchemy period didn't – they weren't just looking for chemical formulas, but they really thought chemicals meant something. Yeah, yeah. And you you can imagine, too, where this gets – you know, we can't look at something without working, without, you know, without our brain beginning to ponder over the possible metaphors there. You know, how does this relate to me? Um, and maybe we're, we get, we're a little further from that now. But, you know, we have to sort of put ourselves in the the mindset of, of older, um, uh, you know, experimenters. And uh, th- this is where I want to bring up uh, some, of the, some of the thoughts that uh, Terrence McKenna brought to the table concerning oh. alchemy. Um, <laughs> And and I think he I think he made he made some good uh, good points on the topic. He gave a series of lectures on alchemy in the late 90s um, and touched on this. And I want to read a, a quote from it from a transcription. Uh, in this, he is citing Iliade, but also putting his own spin on things. Quote: The shaman is the brother of the smith. The smith is the metallurgist, the worker in metals, and this is where alchemy has its roots. We who take this for granted have no idea how mysterious and powerful this seemed to ancient people. And in fact, it would seem so to us if we had anything to do with it. I mean, how many of us are welders or casters of metal? It's a magical process to take, for instance, cinnabar, a red soft ore, and by the mere act of heating it in a furnace, it will sweat liquid mercury onto its surface. We have unconsciously imbibed the ontology of science, where we have mind firmly separated it out from the world. We take this for granted. It's effortless because it is the ambiance of the civilization that we've been born into. But in an earlier age, some writers would say a more naive age, but I wonder about that. Mind and matter were seen to be alloyed together throughout nature so that the sweating of mercury out of cinnabar is not a material process. It is a process in which the mind and the observations of the metal worker maintain an important role. Hmm. Well, I don't know what to think about that claim about the idea, the role of the mind in the the transformations, but I think he he's absolutely right that like, you know, it, it's one of the frustrations of the modern world is that we rely so on so much um, science and, and technology in the background of our lives that we can lose sight of the sheer wonder that that is on, you know, visible if you're actually watching these processes unfold in, in, in firsthand. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about technological metaphors all the time on the show, how mm. how often we think about our own cognition in terms of computers and cameras and mm. digital recordings and so forth, uh, and Photoshop, etc. You know, <laughs> and, and these can all be useful, but they can also distort and create a, a distorted version of of what's actually going on inside the mind or outside of it. And yeah, I think, you know, if you were to put yourself in someone who day in and day out was not using an iPhone, was not using a PC or a, or a Mac or whatever, but was instead uh, 
working with the base materials and with metals and uh, chemicals and trying to figure out their properties, mm-hmm. like this would be the primary way that they would also think about the mind. I mean, it it it, it makes perfect sense to me. Like th- these would be their this would be their telephone, their television, their computer. These would be the ways that they might then self reflect. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's apparent that witnessing chemical reactions suggested to people some kind of deep underlying spiritual reality that was like more than just a, a, an idea about like uh, different types of atoms and how they can fit together, but suggested like like big truths uh, that applied to everything, uh, you know, that that alchemy could in its own way become a, one of these metaphorical universal solvents that it, it explains everything about about God and the universe and humankind in our minds. Yeah. Now, since I did mention McKenna, uh, one might easily say, well, for Terrence McKenna, surely mushrooms, uh, psychedelics were <laughs> yeah. kind of the universal solvent. And yeah, yeah that, that can certainly that can you can certainly make a case for that, uh, especially within certain uh, works of his, you know, uh, Food of the Gods, etc. Um, that's kind of a case where you can say, oh, you drop mushrooms in the middle of this and everything makes sense. Um, oh, did he suggest that Paracelsus took mushrooms? Uh, no, actually, he uh, in in these lectures he he, re- he took quite the opposite approach, and that's why I, I want to share one more uh, snippet from from this uh, lengthy uh, lecture series, which, by the way, you can find online uh, in several places, either in you know audio form or transcribed. Uh, but uh, this is what he had to say: "Quote: I will not claim, and do not, in fact, think it is so that there was anything overtly psychedelic in the sense of uh, pharmacologically based about alchemy when we." look back through the alchemical literature, there's very little evidence that it was pharmacologically driven. Only when you get to the very last adumbrations of of the alchemical impulse in someone like Paracelsus do you get use of opium. It is interesting that the great drugs of modern society were accidentally discovered by alchemists in their research. Distilled alcohol is a product of alchemical work. And as I mentioned, opium was very heavily used um, of the uh, Paracelsian school. But what they possessed was an ability to liquefy their mental categories and then to project the contents of the mind onto these processes and read them back. Now, um, real quick, uh, Paracelsus. We'll, we'll get back to Paracelsus in a bit, but this was an individual who lived 1493 or 1494 through 1541, a Swiss physician and alchemist of the German Renaissance, and he made a number of contributions to modern medical science, and he's come up before on the show, I think, in our episodes on the Trident, on Dangerous Foods, on Frankenstein, and on Blood Drinking, which I guess are all areas where you might well imagine that the realms of chemistry and, uh, and alchemy might come together to some degree. Yeah, Paracelsus is considered one of the sort of granddaddies of alchemy. Um, Mm -hmm. Paracelsus is his nickname, by the way. It's worth mentioning his real name, which was Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. I like that, Bombastus. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I think there's some question about whether the word bombastic comes from his name. Oh, wow. Because he he would throw down. Like, Paracelsus would get into it. In fact, I want to read a... uh, a a passage from a book that uh, that I'm going to be referring to for the rest of the episode that is by uh, Lawrence M. Principe called The Secrets of Alchemy that was published in 2012 by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Principe is professor at Johns Hopkins University specializing in the history of science and technology, and uh, he's written a ton about alchemy and, and its role in the development of science. But 
Um, there's a passage from his book where he briefly introduces the figure of Paracelsus. And he does it like this. He says, Paracelsus spent much of his life wandering from town to town, generally stirring up trouble wherever he went with his iconoclastic and quick-tempered ways. It has been claimed erroneously that the word bombastic in the sense of pompous speech derives from his name. Okay, so that was he's saying, no, that is not where it comes from. But uh, I have encountered that erroneous claim. <laughs> uh, Principe goes on. Paracelsus is best known as a vociferous critic of traditional medicine. His writings, frequently imitated in style by later followers, are filled with vitriolic and sarcastic condemnations of physicians, apothecaries, and the entire medical establishment. It is reported that he publicly burned the medical writings of Ibn Sina, standard texts for medical education at the time, as a sign of his contempt. Paracelsus's other provocative habits included lecturing, for the short time he gave medical lectures in Basel, and writing in his native Swiss-German rather than Latin, and promoting the use of German medicinal plants over more established classical Mediterranean ones. He was a strong advocate of alchemia, but only as one of the pillars of medicine, that is to say, for its ability to prepare pharmaceuticals and to explain bodily functions. He showed no interest in chrysopoeia, and occasionally wrote contemptuously of it. Uh, and again, chrysopoeia is the uh, is the attempt to transmute base metals into gold. It's interesting. All of these are, are attributes of someone who very much wanted to dissolve the rigidity of the of of the establishment. You know, you yeah. could you could look at them acting as a kind of, or trying to act as a kind of universal solvent within their own culture. Yeah, and I guess that should bring us to the the concept of the universal solvent itself, because Paracelsus wrote of something called alkahest, but Paracelsus meant something different by it. Paracelsus wrote of alkahest as a type of medicine for treating a bad liver. But in the wake of Paracelsus, some later alchemists would take the idea of alkahest as a universal solvent and really run with it. Now, remember, again, as, as I said earlier, alchemy is often concerned with the search for these particular chemical arcana in Principe's terms. So, again, this might be a method for transmuting base metals into gold, doing the process of chrysopoeia. Uh, it turns out that this is, uh, despite the fact that some people are still trying to do this today, this is not really possible by conventional chemical means. Like gold, as as we have it here on Earth, is forged. It, it's a product of nucleosynthesis that occurs in some of the most violent phenomena in the universe, like neutron star collisions or exploding, mm -hmm. you know, s stars at the end of their lifespan. Uh, like you, you can't turn lead into gold. That is just not a human power. I guess unless you're talking maybe about. Uh, I don't know, like like tiny amounts of it in, in particle colliders or something, you know, atomic experiments that accelerate protons to ex extremely high speeds and collide with things. And even in that case, I'm not sure. I just can't rule it out there. By conventional chemical means, if you're talking about significant amounts of matter, you cannot turn base metals into gold. That would require rearranging the nucleus of an atom, which we just don't have the power to do. Right. Maybe if you were John D. and you could actually... Um, you know, if you were actually going to capture or utilize an angel and you could somehow tap into their powers, uh, right. they're, they're just like base energy level, then, OK, maybe, maybe it would be possible. Uh, but but not without any like additional supernatural add ons to the chemical uh, understanding that we have. 
Right. And so while the transmutation of base metals uh, like lead into gold is probably the best known quest of alchemy, uh, Principe writes a lot about how alchemy was so much bigger than that. It, it, alchemy was not just the greedy gold slog of people who had, you know, Midas brain. Uh, like it was generally the study of chemical change. And the study of chemical change is a really important and fascinating subject that helps you understand. It sort of unlocks all of the other physical sciences. Uh, I already mentioned the idea of uh, of recipes for bendable glass. I think this is a much more obscure one, but I just bring it up because I did an episode on it. Uh, a, a big part of alchemy, as we've already mentioned, was concerned with refining and improving medicines. But, of course, another holy grail of alchemy was the universal solvent, alkahest. And so the place where alkahest really comes into the picture is in the work of the influential Flemish chemist and physician Jan Baptista van Helmont, who lived 1579 to 1644. Uh, and uh, Van Helmont is responsible for uh, has more of a legacy than you might expect. Van Helmont is responsible for coining the English word gas. Hmm. Uh, he was uh, one of the first people, maybe the first, to identify a gas other than general air when he differentiated carbon dioxide as a distinct form of matter from the rest of the gas in the atmosphere. Apparently the word gas that he coined comes from the Greek word chaos. Oh, wow. Now, Principe writes that uh, Van Helmont is the, is the origin of this search for alkahest as the, as the universal solvent, but notes that Paracelsus, as I already said, had used the word alkahest previously. And this was, again, for a, a, a very special uh, medicine for the liver. Uh, but Van Helmont would take that word alkahest and start using it to describe a hypothetical substance that would be able to dissolve any other substance, the universal solvent. And apparently uh, Paracelsus had a similar idea for a universal solvent uh, that would have been a material called circulated salt or sal circulatum. Um, but but for Van Helmont, alkahest became not just something that you wanted to be able to make, but something that was fundamental in understanding the very nature of matter. Because Van Helmont held a fascinating and mostly wrong, but maybe not entirely wrong, at least sort of in the direction of being right in some interesting ways, a, a view of matter uh, that had these qualities. And it brought in ideas from medicine and theology and previous studies of chemicals. Uh, but the idea was that Van Helmont believed basically everything is made of water, that water is, uh, quote, the basic material substratum of all substances. You drop water in the middle of this and everything makes sense. <laughs> Very good. Um, so this was a departure from previous ideas about the, the constituents of matter. Again, Paracelsus uh, had written about something called the tria prima, which means the three primary things. And Paracelsus, he did not originate this idea fully either. He was building upon the pre-existing chemical knowledge mostly passed down from Arabic scholars who had written that some metals and minerals could really be reduced to two fundamental constituents, which were mercury and sulfur. Uh, this was not correct, but it did show a tendency of thinking that was scientifically useful, which was the idea that matter could be decomposed 
into its constituent parts, different chemical parts that would come together to make molecules of familiar uh, substances, which is very true and, and the basis of what would become the real science of chemistry. And so Paracelsus is picking up on this idea, uh, and he concluded that it was not just that some metals and minerals were could be broken down into mercury and sulfur. He concluded that basically all material could be broken down into three things, mercury, sulfur, and salt. Again, uh, factually wrong, but a, a but trending in a useful uh, direction in terms of ways of thinking about matter. Yeah, kind of coming back to what we were talking about with destruction. Like if you were to destroy anything, what would remain? What are the things that make up the whole? Sure. Uh, and I actually wanted to go into a brief digression on Paracelsus's mingling of theological, metaphysical, and proto-scientific thinking from a, a paragraph in Principe's book that, that I found really interesting. So in writing about Paracelsus's idea of the, the Tria Prima, uh, Principe writes, quote, These three chemical principles provided a terrestrial material trinity that reflected the celestial immaterial trinity, as well as the human triune nature of body, soul, and spirit. Further, Paracelsus endeavored to generate an entire world system, embracing the whole of theology and natural philosophy as an alternative to, and he no doubt hoped, ultimately a substitute for, prevailing contemporaneous systems. For him, chemical processes provided the fundamental model for explaining natural processes in the physical universe as well as within the human body. For example, the cycle of rain through sea, air, and land was, for Paracelsus, a great cosmic distillation. The formation of minerals underground, the growth of plants, the generation of life forms, as well as the bodily functions of digestion, nutrition, respiration, and excretion were, for him, inherently chemical processes. God himself is the master chemist. His creation of an ordered world out of primordial chaos was akin to the chemist's extraction, purification, and elaboration of common materials into chemical products. And his final judgment of the world by fire, like a chemist using fire to purge impurities from precious metals. Paracelsus's system has been called a chemical worldview, and it proved remarkably influential in succeeding generations. So for Paracelsus, not only did he inspire the later search for a literal universal solvent that we're going to be talking about, but it seems very much, again, in the metaphorical, in the mind space, alchemy was his universal solvent. It, it, it explained everything. Now, remember, Van Helmont would go on to break with Paracelsus in believing that matter could be reduced beyond the Tria Prima, ultimately always down to what it was made of at bottom, which was water. So why would Van Helmont think that ultimately everything was made of water? Well, his reasoning was partly theological. Uh, part of it was the primacy of water in the Genesis account of creation. Mm. Uh, and this also calls to mind how in the recent Nile episode, we discussed the prominence of water, not just in the biblical creation story, but as probably, at least in the estimation of the scholar David Leeming, the single most common theme in creation narratives around the world. If you like compare all of the world's religions, creation myths, he says the thing that is in the most of them is water, you know, primordial cosmic oceans. Yeah, yeah. And then oftentimes, you know, like we discussed in that episode, we even would think of the cosmos as ocean. 
Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you, you would, if it's not in the beginning, there's some void or some just empty space of darkness, which I guess to a large point, you could, a large part, point you could say is derived from our modern, uh, popular understanding of of what outer space is yeah they've never um, been to space they yeah. didn't know what space was <laughs> yeah the, the the vast emptiness was the ocean that was the that was the vast mystery the vast uh, primordial body but it wasn't just these theological influences van helmont also based uh, this belief in the material primacy of water on physical experiments that he conducted in the lab uh, so here's an example uh, as described by principe in Van Helmont's most famous experiment, he planted a willow tree sapling that he had weighed beforehand. The willow tree was five pounds, and he planted it in a container with 200 pounds of soil. Then he watered the tree for five years, and at the end of five years, the tree had grown from five pounds to 169 pounds. It had gained about 33 or 34 times its original weight. But... He also measured the soil that the tree had been planted in, and he discovered that the soil weighed almost exactly the same as it did when he planted it. Thus, Van Helmont concluded that water alone had been transformed into all of the substances that make up the tree. The wood, the leaves, this is all just water that has been somehow transformed into higher forms of water, more solid forms of water. And in a way, he was he was partially correct. I mean, much of the bodies of living organisms is made of water. Uh, but also, without understanding the science of photosynthesis, Van Helmont didn't realize that the carbon content of the tree, which is the bulk of its non-water weight, was actually from carbon dioxide from the air, which is absorbed from the atmosphere by the leaves, uh, and then a chemical reaction powered by energy from the sunlight uh, breaks apart the CO2 so that it can be used to make these carbon molecules that the tree needs to make its body. Again, we've talked about this on the show a million times, but it's one of the most astounding facts that you know trees are made out of air. Mm -hmm. But without this knowledge of photochemistry and botany, it was somewhat reasonable for, for Van Helmont to believe that what had gone into the tree was simply what he had put into it, which was water. That, that's the only thing he'd added to it. So how did this system of this, this protean water-based matter work? Uh, well, to read a section from, from Principe describing Van Helmont's thinking, quote, The various transformations of water, he argued, are managed by semina, or seeds, capable of organizing water into other substances. Most materials can be turned back into primordial water through heating and cold, thus establishing a continuous cycle of creation and destruction. Fire destroys substances by turning them into gas, again a word Van Helmont coined from chaos, a non-condensable substance more subtle than any vapor. Gas rises to the upper parts of the atmosphere where, exposed to extreme cold, it returns to elemental water that falls with the rain. The alkahest performs this return to water more quickly and usefully. So at base, everything is made of water, and we're just seeing different forms of water. And if you get something really hot in a fire, it will transform uh, It will transform not only into liquid water, but sort of beyond this point into a gas that floats up into the atmosphere. Then when it's up in the atmosphere, it cools down, turns back into liquid water, and falls as rain. So it's a sort of water-to-water, wet-to-wet worldview. Mm-hmm. 
And then the alkahest comes in as a universal solvent because it seems to serve the function of reducing all matter back down to the state of liquid water without degrading it in the process. So according to Van Helmont, if you were to heat a substance mingled with alkahest, it will first be reduced to its proximate ingredients. Uh, these would be sort of the, the middle constituents, right? Before you get all the way to water, it will break down into some other things first. And these uh, would be comparable to Paracelsus's idea of the tria prima. But then further heating with alkahest will reduce even these proximate ingredients to the ultimate base material, which is water. So from Van Helmont's point of view, the alkahest was, was not a chemical arcanum because it would turn your lead into gold and make you rich. It was actually desirable as the ultimate research tool. Alkahest would have been the ultimate implement for studying what every type of matter is made of. And there's a, there's a, a sentence from Van Helmont that's quoted in Principe's book where he writes, there is no more certain genus of acquiring knowledge than when one knows what is contained in a thing and how much of it there is. So how would you do this? Well, Van Helmont thought that if you could stop the reaction between alkahest and the material in question at just the right time, and then distill the alkahest to remove it, you would be left with what was called the first essence, or the ins primum, and this ins primum would be there in the container left behind as a kind of crystalline salt. And so you could make better medicines this way, for instance, because the, this ins primum would have the medicinal powers of whatever substance that you had been working on, but it would remove all of the toxic or noxious uh, sort of side effects and impurities that could be caused by the original medicinal thing. And thus, in Van Helmont's view, the alkahest was a tool for research. It was a tool for what was called chemiatria, or the development of medicines through chemistry. Now, Van Helmont claimed that he had been able to make alkahest. He's like, I figured it out. I know how to do it. I can prepare it. But he never revealed his secret recipe. And many other scholars struggled in vain to discover Van Helmont's formula for the universal solvent. Uh, some at various points believed they had found it. For example, Principe cites a laboratory notebook entry by the 17th century colonial American alchemist George Starkey, who wrote, quote, At Bristol on 20th March 1656, God revealed to me the whole secret of the liquor alkahest. Let eternal blessing, honor, and glory be to him. So I'm not sure exactly what he discovered, but I do not think it was a real universal solvent. Uh, I, I like that it's described as the liquor alkahest. Like, oh, uh, yeah. imagine if alkahest was a liquor, would it be impossible to make a cocktail with it? Would it always, like, break the cocktail back down into its, uh, its primary ingredients? I mean, you probably wouldn't want to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you would just Unless, melt. You'd just become water. Right. Yeah, I always wanted to be water. It's the ultimate in refreshment, though. Right. <laughs> that would be, that's good marketing. Now, I was looking at another book by Lawrence Principe about alchemy uh, called The Transmutations of Chemistry. And this is chemistry spelled with a an intentionally archaic spelling, uh, C-H-Y-M-I-S-T-R-Y, which is uh, 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 to distinguish it from the modern science of chemistry. Uh, this was published in, in 2020 by uh, University of Chicago Press. And in this case, uh, Principe is discussing the efforts of alchemists like Jan von Helmont to perform chemical analysis of materials such as the bodies of plants, where the idea was, yeah, you can use fire to break materials down into their constituent parts. But the problem is that fire 
while it will decompose the materials into their proximate constituents, fire was deceitful as it would corrupt those constituents in the process. And of course, the solution was Alkahest, which could break things down without corrupting them in the process. And there's a part here where uh, Alkahest is referred to as better than fire. It is the fire of Gehenna, oh. which uh, that's a biblical metaphor. It's a, a metaphor for ignominious destruction that is used in the Bible that is often a little, little Bible interpretation note, often translated into English Bibles as hell. Uh, though previous show guest Bart Ehrman, who's a, a secular uh, Bible historian, uh, he explains that this translation is actually really misleading. It's actually reading later theology about the afterlife into the original text. Uh, and he argues that Gehenna in the original text is not supposed to refer to a place of eternal suffering after life, but in fact it was a real place. It is basically a desolate valley that was um, – it was historically associated with human sacrifice. And so according to Ehrman, being sent to Gehenna, as is often discussed in, in the New Testament, has nothing to do with an afterlife of eternal suffering, but rather is a sort of uh, – it's a squalid and unceremonious annihilation. It's sort of equivalent to telling somebody that they're going to die and be thrown into a garbage dump. <laughs> okay. Not nice either way, but, uh, but somewhat different than the idea of everlasting suffering in hell. Yeah. Though, ultimately, if you're put in a garbage dump, and I guess in the right conditions, you are going to break down and become uh, <laughs> a part sure. of, uh, of the natural world again. <laughs> Get to become your tria prima and then, and then water, I guess. Yeah. But in Ge Gehenna, it sounds like it would have been, it, you know, it wouldn't be like a modern garbage dump. It would be a place where you break down or probably partially uh, consumed by scavenging beasts that, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, pretty cushy. Anyway, that, that was just a, a, a Bible uh, nerd side note. Uh, so it, it probably doesn't figure in here because I would guess Van Helmont is, is referring to the supernatural hell interpretation. So Alkahest is much better than earthly fire. It's like a holy supernatural fire. Hmm. But again, uh, Van Helmont writes about how the Alkahest could decompose matter into its tria prima or its constituent parts and then eventually back into water with no compromise or destruction of the properties along the way. And, uh, and Principe writes about how, uh, again, we mentioned earlier, this could be used to make better medicines. And in this section, he actually mentions what a couple of these medicines would have been. Quote, Van Helmont describes several pharmaceuticals he claims to have prepared using the Alkahest, most notably a cure for kidney and bladder stones made from a mineral he calls lutus and an elixir of life prepared from Lebanon cedar wood. The only obstacle in this glorious royal road for chemistry was that no one knew how to prepare Van Helmont's alkahest. Hmm. I guess the, the obvious is, is, the, is the truth that if uh, the, the alkahest was possible, if there was a universal solvent to be found, then surely modern chemistry would have found it in the wake of alchemy. Yeah, and so here we reveal that there are several flaws to the fundamental assumptions on which the, the uh, Alkahest was based. I mean, one thing is that Van Helmont's conception of all material ultimately being based on water is not true. Right. But that doesn't mean that modern chemistry is, uh, is without some really exceptional, exquisite dissolvers that will, maybe, while maybe not being universal solvents, will break down lots of stuff. A, a shocking amount of stuff. 
Uh, so a couple that are worth mentioning. One I wanted to talk about is the chemical known as aqua regia, which uh, the name literally means royal water in Latin. It's made with one part nitric acid and three parts hydrochloric acid. It is extremely corrosive. Uh, it's a liquid with a reddish orange color that can not only cause severe burns if you touch it, it can literally dissolve otherwise non-reactive metals like gold and platinum. Aqua Regia briefly came up in our episode on heavy water, I think because we were talking about the uh, the historical anecdote where the chemist George de Hevesy had to uh, had, had to quickly find a way to hide the Nobel Prize medals, which I think were made of gold, in the laboratory of Niels Bohr mm-hmm. when the laboratory was being uh, captured and searched by the Nazis, and he ended up dissolving the medals in Aqua Regia to prevent them from being found out. So aqua regia sounds refreshing, is not refreshing, though. Do, do, do not buy a bottle no, of that, it at your local convenience store. Not a good LaCroix flavor. Maybe better than coconut. <laughs> oh, I love coconut. coconut coconut's a good uh, LaCroix oh, flavor for me, at least at the beach, and as long as it's cold. Uh, but if it uh, warms up and I'm not at the beach, then uh, yeah, certainly if both of those are true, then, yeah, I don't want any part of it. Oh, I'm a picky. So I, I, I do love the soda waters. I like the LaCroix. I like most flavors. Uh, and, and I like real coconut stuff, but the coconut LaCroix, something about it. It's like, for me, it's like drinking sunscreen. It's something's wrong. I think maybe that's why I like it because it kind of tastes like what sunscreen historically smelled like. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's like drinking the, um, the, the, you know, the alchemical truth of the beach, um, uh, while at the beach. So I can go one even better on these uh, these dissolvers. There's one thing I've been reading about called piranha solution. Okay. Uh, this is this is a class of industrial and laboratory grade cleaning solutions, colloquially known as piranha solutions, and and you can guess how they got their name. Um, <laughs> They, they are typically used as a ruthless and very dangerous way to strip all residue of organic molecules from a container, surface, or substrate. Now, it's interesting that it, ha- it, is, it is getting closer, it sounds like, to what we think of as, as Hollywood acid. But in doing so, it invokes Hollywood piranhas. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's making you think of what's the James Bond movie where uh, you only live twice, right? Mm-hmm. With the bridge that goes over the piranhas. And if you like, that's your bad performance review means that your fish food. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one with Donald Pleasance is Blofeld. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a common formulation of piranha solutions, extremely dangerous material, would be three parts sulfuric acid, or H2SO4, and one part hydrogen peroxide, which is H2O2. Piranha solution is, from everything I read, extremely temperamental. Mixing the elements in the wrong order, or in the wrong ratio, or in the presence of the wrong contaminants – can immediately lead to explosions. Uh, It seems like there are just lots of ways that using it can lead to explosions. More on that in a bit. So I was trying to figure out, okay, how exactly does this stuff work? Um, There was a helpful podcast episode I found. Uh, The Royal Society of Chemistry has a a podcast called Chemistry and Its Element, though sometimes I see it referred to just as the Chemistry World podcast. No, Chemistry World is their uh, magazine, their publication. Uh, but this podcast episode was hosted by Sam Tracy, and it's about piranha solution. And I appreciated the way Tracy explained what the solution does at the molecular level. Uh, first of all, I wanted to point out Tracy notes that it's not just named piranha solution for its ability 
to to dissolve all organic matter that it comes into contact with, but perhaps also for its tendency to boil vigorously when uh, it's in the presence of organic matter. So like in that scene and you only live twice where the piranhas start attacking somebody, it looks like mm-hmm. the water has been put on the boil. There's just bubbles everywhere. Yeah, almost as if um, a, a bubbling mechanism was placed underwater to create the illusion yes. <laughs> of um, of a horde of piranhas, um, you know, tearing something apart in movie fashion. Actually, here's something I want to see. Uh, answer this question: If you were actually attacked by a school of piranhas, I don't know if they even swarm like that in reality. I kind of doubt it. But if you were, would it would it would the water boil like that, or would it look very calm on the surface? Well, I think we should answer this question and do an episode on piranhas. I don't know that I've, I've ever uh, we've ever devoted an episode to piranhas. So let's let's come back to it. They're they're beautiful fish. Okay, so how does it work? Well, piranha solution again, as I mentioned, has two main ingredients: it has sulfuric acid H two S O four and hydrogen peroxide H two O two. So if you imagine a glass container with organic residue of glucose, you know, sugar stuck to the inside. Uh, and imagine this is exposed to a piranha solution for cleaning. Each of the two ingredients plays a different role in cleaning the sugar away. So sugar, of course, is an organic molecule. It's a carbohydrate molecule with the formula C6H12O6. At least that's glucose. Different uh, types of sugar have different chemical compositions. But it's got carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And when exposed to concentrated sulfuric acid, this acid acts as an aggressive dehydrating agent. So it will chemically uh, react to remove water molecules as much as it can. So the sugar molecules will get broken apart and the sugar will lose hydrogen and oxygen atoms in the form of water vapor, H2O. And so if you have a molecule like sugar that's based on carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and you're rapidly pulling hydrogen and oxygen off of it, what are you going to have left over? A lot of carbon. So if you've ever seen this experiment where you douse sugar in sulfuric acid, there, there are a lot of videos you can look up online. Um, usually you'll have like a beaker with a bunch of sugar in it, and somebody douses it in sulfuric acid and then stirs it up with a glass pipette. Uh, the sugar will first turn brown and then black and then give off all of these fumes. I think it's giving off both water vapor and noxious fumes of sulfur dioxide. So you shouldn't do this experiment without, uh, you know, supervision of somebody who knows what they're doing because it, it, it gets very hot and it puts off these fumes. It can be dangerous potentially. But but what eventually ends up happening is that the carbon residue that's left over from the reaction of the acid with the sugar this carbon residue will start to climb out of the beaker in a looming column like a giant tube worm or snake that is made out of charred soot. Uh, And you can find a whole genre of carbon snake pictures online from uh, demonstrations of this reaction. They're pretty great. Yeah, they can be quite impressive. Yeah, all, all praise be to the carbon snakes. But uh, Sam Tracy in in this podcast I was talking about mentions that the the role of sulfuric acid is twofold. Uh, Quote, its acidity catalyzes the reaction and being a hygroscopic substance, it combines with the water, releasing a great quantity of heat, meaning the reaction cannot go in the reverse direction and can only proceed to completion. But of course, this alone would not make a cleaning agent because sulfuric acid alone would tend to simply eat up organic molecules, strip them of what water can be pulled out of them, and leave a ton of black elemental carbon in its wake. And that is not 
clean. Like you, you don't want black elemental carbon stuck to your glass surfaces or your electronics or your, you know, your wafer chips or whatever, uh, whatever it is you're trying to clean. So this is where the hydrogen peroxide comes in. Hydrogen peroxide serves to eat away the remaining carbon byproduct that would have been left over from the acid's attack on the carbohydrate. Uh, so hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, will react with the elemental carbon by donating oxygen atoms to the carbon, which combine to produce carbon dioxide gas, which floats away in the air, eventually leaving your substrate clean of all organic material. So hypothetically, you, you have – and again, I'm not advising to do this. It's extremely dangerous. But what would happen is you have a glass container or a uh, an electronics part, whatever it is you're trying to clean off. It's got a little bit of organic material on it, maybe some sugar or some other kind of carbohydrate, something like that. And you add this solution to it. It is uh, – the organic materials are ripped apart by the acid and then the remaining carbon is just removed and evaporated by the hydrogen peroxide. I was reading about many ways that the piranha solution is, as I've said several times now, extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. This is not one to try it with a home chemistry set as it can easily explode and cause severe injuries and burns. Uh, I was reading a, a, a story that was sent to uh, in a letter to chemical engineering news by a couple of researchers in the year 1990 that was about multiple accidents that had occurred in university labs with piranha solutions. One where a container of piranha solution was sitting stored in a fume hood and about a week after it was mixed, it just spontaneously exploded. Another one they talk about is uh, it, it occurred at Cornell University where – I think what happened is that some piranha solution was accidentally and very unfortunately mixed with acetone, uh, and this mm. caused a violent explosion that like ripped apart the hood that it was under and severely injured the person who was working on it. They ended up you know covered in this corrosive liquid with a bunch of glass embedded in them, so it is not something to screw around with. So not literal alkahest, not a literal universal solvent, but, <laughs> but piranha solution will get you a lot of the way there. All right. Well, you know, at this point, we're reaching the end of the podcast, and I think the only only way to really go at this point is to at least briefly discuss uh, New Age occult thinking and um, also uh, tech biz lingo. Uh, okay. Uh, let, let's start with uh, with the with the New Age uh, New Age and occult uh, psych and psychedelic thinking. Uh, basically, discussing universal solvent as a metaphor. Now, earlier in our discussion, I brought up Terence McKenna and his lectures on alchemy. And uh, again, McKenna said that he didn't see much of a connection between alchemy and psychedelics, uh, th those certain important uh, pharmacological discoveries would come out of alchemy. Uh, for the most part, psychedelics were the domain of the shaman. Uh, but of course, other schools of thought would uh, later on in human history come back to alchemy uh, and its sacred and obscure dimensions and find new meanings there. So, for instance, we see that with uh, the Jungians, uh, and we also see that with psychedelic and New Age thinking as well. Again, you know, you're dealing with with recipes that are dealing, uh, you know, talking about you know the red dragon and using code words, but also dealing in philosophical and, and magical ideas. Mm -hmm. It's irresistible to come back and sort of, um, you, you know, Im imbue your own meaning into it, and uh, and and perhaps even rediscover aspects of your. Your, your current, your contemporary system by breathing it into this archaic apparatus. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I, th I think alchemy, uh, concepts from alchemy were very popular to be played around with by like a lot of the, uh, the sort of new religious movements of the late 19th century. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, this ultimately fits 
the, the basic format of alchemy throughout history. Like a lot of alchemy, even you know, you know in the old days, revolved around uh, looking back at old texts piecing together bits from old texts and trying to to break new ground, understand what th- these these other authors were talking about and uh, and creating some new uh, frame of meaning around it. You know, something that uh, alchemy also has in common with religious texts is uh, pseudonymous writings. Uh, mm. So in in, for example, in the early centuries of Christianity, a huge thing that would often go on is like you would write a new book that you know you would want to be taken as scripture that would advance your view of the correct theological interpretation of Christ uh but you'd be like well eh, nobody knows who I am so I'm going to say that this was written by uh St Peter and <laughs> so you know this is the gospel of Peter like this is definitely not written by Peter um but people were doing this kind of thing all the time the same thing happened with alchemy people would write pseudonymously as like you know as one of the great masters of alchemy. Yes, uh, this was by Paracelsus, but it actually wasn't. It was just some somebody. <laughs> well, uh, you know, in, in, in dealing specifically with, with Alkahest and the idea of a universal solvent, you know, I, I looked through some of the writings of uh, and, and lectures of McKenna. I looked through uh, uh, Iliade's work and, uh, you know, it's possible I missed something, but I, I, I didn't find any case where either of them specifically spoke or, or wrote about the Alkahest. Um, however, you do see the alkahest pop up in New Age and psychedelic literature as a metaphor, uh, in some cases for psychedelic compounds, um, you know, a way of thinking about what something like psilocybin can do in the mind. Uh, but it reminds me a little bit of McKenna's arguments, uh, uh, argument that psychedelics in the West may have enabled Buddhism to spread more thoroughly through Western thought. I'm not sure I agree with him completely on that, but I think it's a, it's a valid point that as a culture's understanding of consciousness changes, it does open them up to the discovery and rediscovery of various spiritual concepts. Okay, so in the, if you're thinking in the Terence McKenna type vein, the idea is that uh, is that the use of psychedelics would have broadly enabled, uh, sort of reduced the mind to its tria prima or to its more proximate constituents uh, without degradation, allowing uh, more different types of states of mind to be. Uh, accessed as opposed to the the narrower window of different ways you can think based on your cultural upbringing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And and yeah, I, I like this idea. I like the idea of using alkahest as a as a kind of metaphor for anything that like breaks down unuseful rigidity in thought or culture. Um, yeah, and and I and I also like the idea of uh, of of psychedelics being seen as some sort of a universal solvent potentially, and 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 again, it, you know, you're in the breaking down of things. It, I think it also drives home that it's a delicate process, and you know what you're doing, and you don't want to you know to to go too far and dissolve too much, uh, but uh, you know, breaking down the mind that's too rigid to melt, right? Um, Though at one point McKenna does point out that there's this um, this alchemical aphorism that uh, in, in in Latin is dissolutio et coagulatio, which um, we were just discussing this uh, off mic. Uh, like this basically breaks down to the dissolving and um, and the coagulation of things to to break things <laughs> down and then things build back up. Um, and that, that ultimately, this is all one needs to know about, like the nature of reality, uh, you know, the, the alchemical truth of things. And uh, I, I think this is, you know, this is this is a basic idea that you can apply to the physical world, but also to you, you can see how readily one could take to this as a um, 
as, as a psychological concept as well, and certainly a psychedelic concept. You know, the idea of breaking things down, but then, but then that rigidity is going to uh, is going to return. There's going to be some coagulation that's going to take place again. You know, I do. Before we end, though, want to come back to something that I think we touched on earlier, which is the potential dangers of of seeing the world in terms of universal solvents. I mean, one thing we learned as alchemy uh, passed away and gave way to modern chemistry is that there is, in fact, no such thing as a as a universal solvent in chemistry. I mean, there are solvents that will dissolve lots of things, but uh, but but there is no universal acid in the Daniel Dennett sense. And I wonder if that is also a lesson that should be applied in in the metaphorical way, sort of coming back against everything we've talked about in this episode. Because I, I mean, I, I really do believe that a a huge amount of trouble and confusion in the world comes from people getting overly attached to a certain lens of viewing the world, or uh, or analytical tool, or new strategy, and thinking that it will solve everything. Uh, that it will answer all questions, that it will solve all your problems. You know, like I feel like that, that is something that we all have a tendency for, uh, but it's, it's very dangerous and something to watch out for in yourself. And one of the weird ways I was thinking about this is actually uh, pulling us away from the, the mysterious worlds at the intersection of, uh, you know, theology and metaphysics and science and chemistry. Uh, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, tech business, <laughs> uh, because I was just thinking about all of the different universal solvents that we have witnessed come and go uh, over the years uh, working in digital media. And they, they come and they go and they come and they go. And so I'm thinking about the universal solvents of search engine optimization. You remember when like everything on the internet suddenly had to change to be search engine optimized and it kind of yeah. ruined a huge amount of content that was good previously and then was just destroyed by optimization for Google search results. And then that kind of, and then, you know, they change how their search results are calculated anyway. So that it becomes obsolete later on. And then I remember the, the UGC revolution at some point. It was like, well, everything's got to be uh, user-generated content, you know. And, yeah, everything is Wikipedia now. Yeah, yeah and so, and that sort of destroyed everything in its path, and then that kind of went away. And you, you know, the the various pivot to videos and the optimization mm-hmm. for the Facebook newsfeed, and then that, and then the pivot to blockchain and everything. You know, it's like every every few years in in our business space, we we see a universal solvent come along. That uh, maybe changes some things, maybe uh, destroys some things, and maybe maybe hopefully there are some things that are relatively unscathed by it. But then it just goes along on its own way, and and usually uh, the, these things do not actually solve all the problems and do not will not last forever. Well, I guess it ultimately comes down to who is applying a, a supposed universal solvent, right? Yeah. And it generally comes down to these the, these businesses of disruption. It mm-hmm. is about dissolving the rigidity of the of some aspect of the industry but it comes back to that 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 alchemical truth that we just uh, laid out right uh the the dissolution and coagulation they are mm-hmm. it's not so much the dissolution that they're into it is the eventual coagulation because they wish to be the masters of that coagulation you right. know i want i don't want to make everything free so that it remains free. I want to make everything free because I have a new model of how to charge for it, you know? Uh, <laughs> right. And that's what we see time and time again with these different um, you know, disruption strategies. You want to disrupt, uh, you know, they take 
uh, you know, cable television, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's classic, you know, all these, uh, these services that came along to cut our costs and cut our cords. And, you know, and we're at the point now where, yeah, if you want to watch everything that everyone's talking about, you're spending as much money as you were, uh, as you were probably spending in previous decades on your, your cable and your satellite and so forth. So it's just, it, but just the structure of it and the masters of it have in some cases changed. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is often you're just finding uh, you go through destruction and then there's some kind of return to a new equilibrium. But um, but along the way, I would just say be careful not to be led astray or to lose too much to something that seems like it uh, – I guess anything that seems like it does anything, the universal solvent or the panacea. I mean, nothing actually works in every case. Any, even if something is good at something, it's, it's not good at everything. You're right. It ju- might just reduce your product um, to a um, uh, to a carbon husk, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close the alchemical books on this one, but I'm sure we will return to alchemy in the future when we deal so much with the the history of uh, of science and uh, and you know the history of of religion and spiritual concepts as well. That inevitably, uh, uh, alchemical topics will arise once more, uh, and uh, and I look forward to it. And hey, uh, maybe we'll do an episode on piranhas in the near future as well. I love a good uh, uh, a good biology expo- exploration as well. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them. They are in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, where you can get wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You'll find artifact episodes on Wednesdays, listener mails on Mondays. Fridays, you'll find episodes of Weird House Cinema. That's where we just talk about a weird movie with little or no concern for science or uh, alchemy uh, either. And then on the weekends, we air a little bit of a repeat in the form of a vault episode. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 